The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles, if you would, and let's open them to Exodus chapter 28. And we return to our discussion of the Old Testament priesthood and its relationship to the worship of Jehovah God through sacrifices. And the purpose is to show us the, how the priesthood represents the work of Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. And in this 28th chapter, there, there's a command for the separation of Aaron and his sons to fill the office of the priest. They were the central figures in conducting worship, primarily by offering sacrifices for the people. And their activities were marked by a pattern of worship that was established in heavenly places. This is a divine order that God has given. So in this chapter, there are instructions or their clothing, which may seem like an insignificant thing, but there, there are instructions for this, just as there are for all the other parts and pieces of the tabernacle. And especially we find in the 28th chapter information about the clothing of the high priest, that he was not to dress in the normal fashion of the people, but his clothing was to set him apart as different, and uh, they're holy and glorious, as we see in verse number 2. And the purpose was to show that Israel needed someone holy, someone who is fully consecrated to go to God and speak on their behalf. They were the mediators between Israel and God. And their duties anticipated the work of Christ, who is our priest, our sacrifice, our intercessor, and our redeemer. And so as Israel needed a priest, we also need a priest. We can no more go to God without a mediator than they could. And so we need someone who's holy and harmless and undefiled. We need someone who fulfills the Aaronic priesthood and more. And Christ is perfectly suited with his eternal, unchangeable priesthood. Now, each of the articles of clothing symbolized one of these aspects of Christ's work. And when all the articles of clothing were put on, the priest was ready for duty. And interestingly, on the holiest day of the year, that would be the Day of Atonement, the priest didn't wear these clothes. Now, he did for a certain portion of the day, but when he performed the sacrifices for atonement, he put off this clothing. And that seems like a very strange thing, and we'll explain why that was done when we get to our study of the Day of Atonement. But the worship of Jehovah was vivid, it was visual. Every movement from ritual to ritual showed Jesus Christ and him at the center of the work of the high priest. Now we've discussed two parts of the priest's clothing. These are the linen undergarments and the sash or the girdle that held the garments close to the body. So now we move on in to continue the third part of our outline. And this third part is the robe of the ephod, which stands for the unceasing work of Christ. Our scripture is... For this is Exodus 28, verses 31 to 35. So if you'll look there in verse number 31. And thou shalt make the robe of the ephod all of blue, and there shall be a hole in the top of it, in the midst thereof, 
It shall have a binding of woven work round about the whole of it, as it were the whole of a havergen, that it be not rent. And beneath upon the hem of it thou shalt make pomegranates, of blue and of purple and of scarlet, round about the hem thereof, and bells of gold between them round about. Golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, upon the hem of the robe round about. And it shall be upon Aaron to minister, and his sound shall be heard when he goeth in unto the holy place before the Lord, and when he cometh out, that he die not. Now the robe of the ephod is the blue garment in the picture that comes up here next. This is the blue part of that, that is just over the, the white linen, the white linen garments. And this robe represents the busyness of Christ. It's the untiring devotion of the Lord to do everything that the Father gave him to do. And Christ had that one purpose when he came into the world, and that was to do the will of the Father, to do everything the Father gave him to do. And so the Father planned in eternity, and then when the Son came, he set himself on a course to fulfill the Father's work in every detail. And there was nothing that he would let stand in the way of that work. Now we're discussing this robe of the ephod and how that works with the unceasing, uh, tireless work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we start with the color of it. The color of it is blue. And this stands for the heavenly character of Christ. It's blue because blue is the color of the skies. It's the color of heaven it's blue because Christ came from heaven. The work that he did was heaven's work. It's heaven's work for Christ to claim all those that are chosen by the Father to eternal life. It's heaven's work to gather all of them and bring them to the shores of heaven where they will praise and glorify God forever. And so to get us from here to there, we, we need someone who's capable of doing that work. Someone who is capable of being a sacrifice, someone with ability to ransom, someone to redeem, someone to satisfy the justice of God against us, someone who is perfect in holiness, who is untouched in righteousness, who is without spot or blemish. And that person, the only person, is Jesus Christ. As the song the choir sings, Jesus, the one and only, that's what he is. He alone could do this, and so he was sent from blue heaven to do his work. Blue is the dominant color of the tabernacle, showing that the priest's work is heaven's work. He, blue dominates his clothing. And then likewise, in our, in our message last week, we learned that each person in Israel also wore blue. The borders of their clothing was blue, and that showed that they belonged to the God of heaven. Now secondly, on the robe of the ephod, there were pomegranates. And the pomegranates stand for fruits of perfection. Sewn into the fringe of the, of the robe were images of pomegranates. Pomegranates are one of the fruits that were grown in Canaan. And in a general sense, they represent all of the fruits of Canaan, all the many different uh, uh, types of plants and, and things that they ate were grown there. And as the land was fruitful, it was a land flowing with milk and honey, so are God's people, so were God's people to be fruitful. The fruit refers to their good works as they obey God's commandments. Uh, to grow fruit requires labor. The harvest doesn't come without toilsome work. And so it is in the Christian life that we are taught to work. We're called to work for our God. 
Ephesians 5, 14 to 16 says, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then, that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Jesus said, John 9, 4, I must work the works of him that sent me, while it is day, the night cometh, when no man can work. Those are verses about service. We're not going to bear fruits by sleeping in our Christianity. We must follow the example of Christ who served God continually, always working, barely sleeping, always praying, always with his mind set on his mission from his Father. So on the robe of the ephod are these pomegranates. They represent the fruit of service. But then to add to the busyness of Christ's service, there were also bells. Bells that were interspersed between each pomegranate. Now, years ago, when, when I was a child, this was the part of the priest's garment that caught my attention. And I remember this next slide that we have. This is a slide that my dad used to show. Uh, these slides, I have told you, were made in, in uh, 1957. They were originally slides that you put into a projector. And uh, over the years, they become very faded. And so Jeff Boyd, uh, those of you who remember Jeff Boyd, uh, as a favor to me, took these slides and he redid them. He re re recolored them digitally, remastered them as a, as a favor to me. And uh, every time that I pull one of these slides up, that is a reminder of my dad when he preached on this. This was one of his favorite subjects, and as I've said, it's become one of mine. Most of you probably remember some of the toys that you played with when you were a child. Remember toys that you played with? I have a set of old beat-up trucks that my mom gave me for my birthday when I was five years old. And those are in my garage, and every now and then I, when I go out to the garage, I see those, and those bring back good memories. But the thing that really, really is, stands out to me in childhood memories, and you might think that I'm very strange about this, but the thing that stands out most to me as a child was my dad teaching me the Bible. And my dad's showing me things like this and helping me to understand these things. And I think that parents ought to think about this. What is the most important thing that you can do for your children? What values have you given them? What do you do with them? And what do you do for them that says God is number one in your life and God should be number one in their life? What are their memories going to be as they get older? Mine aren't about Little League and ball games and entertainment. Mine is this. This is what, what you see right now. And maybe that makes me weird. I don't know. But th those are my childhood memories. I remember the bells at the bottom of the ephod. Now, back then, of course, I didn't think that someday I would do what my father did, that I would take these very same slides and preach sermons on them and tell you what I learned about how they stand for Christ and the untiring work of him on our behalf. And I can tell you that's a whole lot better than knowing batting averages. It's better than knowing all the stats for fantasy football. So what are these bells? What are these all about? Well, these are, this is a third thing on your outline. These are golden bells, and they stand for Christ's constant service. And I'll say that first. They are golden Gold is the material of deity. It's the metal of deity. Gold represents kingship. Gold is the wealth of God. And Christ is gold. 
Now, it's not difficult to understand that why as a child, that picture is the one that caught my attention. A ringing bell, a noisemaker, that always catches a child's attention. Parents know that it does. Uh, after about 10 minutes of constantly blowing a horn, ringing a bell, beating a toy drum, blowing on the flutophone, or constantly kicking a chair just to hear the noise, uh, you get very annoyed at that. Noisemakers, you hate the noisemakers, but your kids love it. It doesn't bother them at all because they know if it annoys you, it's got to be the best thing in the world, so they just keep on doing it. But the noisemaker, that caught my attention. Uh, in this next picture, I want to show you the little country church where, as a boy of six years old, that I, I came to know Christ as my Savior. This is where, this is the first church that my, that my dad was the pastor. And in the, in the little steeple that you see on that church, there was a bell. And this bell was attached to a rope that was about maybe an inch in diameter. It hung down through a, through a hole in the ceiling. And uh, we would use that bell to call the church to worship. That when, when that bell rang, then you knew it was time for the services to start. So my dad would go in there and he'd get hold of that, uh, of that rope. And that bell was really, really heavy. So he'd give a real strong tug and he'd get that bell ringing and it would, that rope would go up and down almost by its own. And so he would let me come in and grab hold of that rope. And being small and light, the rope would take me up with it. And I'd come down with it. I'd go up and down and up and down. And so I just remember the ringing of that bell. And as I said, that, that told everyone that we, we were ready for service. We're ready to start serving the Lord. Now, I want to take that thought and, and bring it into the picture here we have a, of the many little bells that were on the hem of this garment. The sound of those ringing bells meant that the priest was always serving. Now, in verse number 35... And it shall be upon Aaron to minister, and his sound shall be heard when he goeth in unto the holy place before the Lord, and when he cometh out, that he die not. Now the people stood outside of the tabernacle as the priests made the sacrifice, and they could see him at the altar as they cut the animal's throat, and they drained the blood into basins, and then they, they watched as the other priests assisted when they hoisted that animal up on the altar that's already burning with fire from a perpetual fire that came from heaven, and cutting up this animal, draining all of the blood out of it, that was very nasty work. So the next thing that they would see was the priest go over and he would wash his hands and his feet in the, in the labor that was just before the opening, the door of the tabernacle. And then when he was through with that, he would walk towards the tabernacle. He'd push away a... Um, a curtain there, a, a linen curtain that was there, and then he would walk into the tabernacle. And once he went through, the people didn't see him anymore. They couldn't see what he was doing in the tabernacle. He pushes that aside, he goes in, and he just disappears behind the curtain. So they don't know what he's doing in there. Well, they do know what he's supposed to be doing. He's supposed to be busy. He's supposed to uh, do his work. And they could hear those bells and they would know that he was working for them. So they couldn't see him, but as he walked and he worked, the bells are always ringing. Constantly there's the tinkling of the bells. That told him the priest was busy doing his work. Now you see, again, uh, as I mentioned I think last week uh, or before, there were no chairs in the tabernacle. He didn't go in and sit down. He couldn't take a load off. He was in there to work. 
So to hear those bells ringing, that was a confidence builder for the people. The high priest was busy. He's serving them. He's there in the tabernacle with them on his mind, and he's representing them before God. The blood of sacrifice is being applied for their sins, and they were right with God because the priest was doing what the priest should do. And so they heard those bells. And what do we learn from that? What do we learn from ringing bells? Well, I want to give you tonight three important truths that we learn from these little ringing bells on the hem of that garment. The first truth that we learn is that Jesus always intercedes. Have any of you ever seen Jesus? I don't think so. I know that all of you have seen him through the eyes of faith. If you're a believer in him, you've seen him through the eyes of faith, but there's none of you that has physically seen him. Uh, you've not seen him in a statue. You've, you've not seen him in a picture or crucifix. Those things are not Jesus. You've not seen him in dreams or visions. I'm sorry, but the scriptures don't support that. God doesn't appear that way because he requires us to believe in him by faith. And so he speaks to us through his word. He doesn't give us visual pictures. He doesn't manifest himself visually in the dreams and the visions and all of that. His way of revealing himself today is through the Word of God. But one time, at one time, he was visible. Jesus came from heaven in the flesh. He was the visible manifestation of the Father. He was God incarnate. When Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father, Jesus said, look at me. When you've seen me, You've seen the Father, and he said that because he was God. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. John said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now we're unable to see Christ now, but we have full confidence that He is busy on our behalf. Hebrews 7 says, but this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Jesus went back to heaven. He was manifested in the flesh, but he went back to heaven, but he didn't put his feet up. First Corinthians says that he'll not stop until the last enemy is destroyed. In that chapter of Chapter 15, but every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. 
And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now there, in that passage, it's talking, this is the very end. This is the end. But until then, until we're all safe in heaven, until we have the eternity of heaven, until all the chosen ones are taken home, Jesus will continue to work. His life is a life in heaven, a life of intercession. Now, He saved us from our sins, but have you noticed this, that we still sin? We're still in the flesh, we still live here, we still sin, and much of my work as a pastor is to encourage people to faithfulness, to be holy, to stop sin, but we still sin. That's because we're still being sanctified in this life. And until we reach heaven, we need someone to stand before the Father and to plead for us. And this is what Christ's intercession is for. This is part and parcel of our eternal security. And without it, we won't get to heaven. Now, there are some who believe we can be lost. And I will say, yes, we can. We can if Christ stops interceding. That, that's, it, 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 it's sure to happen if he sits down and the bells go silent. But he'll not sit down. He can't sit down because he's pledged to bring all of us to our heavenly home. We're saved to the uttermost, according to Hebrews 7.25. I want you to listen to Albert Barnes' comment. He said, to the uttermost. This does not simply mean forever but that he has the power to save them so that their salvation shall be complete. He does not abandon the work midway. He does not begin a work he is unable to finish. He can aid as long as we need anything done for our salvation. He can save all who entrust salvation to his hands. Now, I want you to, I want you to, to savor that comment for just a minute while I tell you this. About a month ago, I received an email from a pastor in Montgomery Village. Some of you may know who this is. And this is not the, the, the same event as I mentioned last week in our bulletin. But uh, this pastor invited me to a meeting of Bay Area pastors so that we could get together and fellowship and work for a common cause. And I get those types of emails often, uh, many times. So I was getting tired of receiving the emails. I've got plenty to do besides reading that. And so I was tired of receiving them, so I clicked on the unsubscribe button at the bottom of that email. The next thing I know, within 12 hours, I get a message on the phone, and it's this pastor, and I assume that he wanted to know why I depastored him on, uh, on this, my Facebook page, which of course I don't have, but um, I assume that's what he wanted to know. And this happens to be the same pastor that, Brian Petro had a discussion with years and years ago, uh, and Brian outed him on his laissez-faire attitude towards theology. So Brian asked him a question, do you believe in eternal security? Now, mind you, the church that he pastors is supposed to be, or at one time at least, was a Baptist church. They've dropped the name Baptist, but I think they might still have an affiliation with one of the Baptist conferences. But he asked this pastor, do you believe in eternal security? And this pastor, and I'm not going to, I'll never forget the answer. The pastor said, does it matter? Theology can be sloppy and it can be lazy. Does it matter? Well, this is what it matters. 
If salvation can be lost, Jesus must sit down. If salvation can be lost, the bells must stop ringing. And if those bells fall silent, the consequences of that are monumental. The priest is negligent in his duties if the bells stop. The priesthood fails. The, the, the priest dies, it says in our text, if those bells stop. Now, I believe the Scripture teaches that Christ lives to make intercession for us. Does the doctrine matter? The deity, the priesthood, the faithfulness, the service of Jesus Christ depends on this doctrine. And now, you, you may understand a little bit better why I don't care anything at all about sitting down with them at one of their meetings. Doctrine matters. Explicit, precise doctrine matters. A mistake in just one area has huge implications in other areas. Now, the doctrine of the preservation and the perseverance of the saints ties into, both of those doctrines tie into the eternal priesthood and the eternal purpose of the one true living God. And so I cringe to hear somebody say, does that really matter? Does it matter if we teach doctrine here? Now notice again the last part of verse 25. The sound of the bells is to be heard, that he die not. It's a personal affront to the holy God to upset this typology of Christ's ceaseless intercession. And so the penalty of those non-ringing bells was death. And so do you think that the preacher who says eternal security doesn't matter, do you think that he preaches Christ or do you think that he offends Christ? It's not a small matter to pervert doctrine. We've got to preach preservation and perseverance and strongly stand on that or else we give up the living Christ who is determined to do the Father's work. John 17, 2, Jesus said, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So Jesus is working for eternal life. And in order to do that, the bells have to keep ringing. He must always intercede. Now the next truth that comes out of the ringing bells is that Christ is alive. If they heard the bells, then they knew the high priest was doing his duty, and there are, only, there are a couple of things that can stop those bells. Two things can stop the bells. He stopped working, and he was struck dead, or he did something wrong. Maybe he set the blood aside, maybe he went into the holiest place when he wasn't supposed to, and if he did, they stop ringing. If he does something wrong, then it's a death sentence. Now, do you see the implications of this? The high priest stood for Christ. Did Christ do all that was required? And was it done in the right way? To upset this typology is significant. Careless theology does that, whether it's a charlatan pastor like the one I just mentioned or whether it's a Baptist of some other stripe who misrepresents the atonement. These are very serious issues. We preach the living Christ, and we can't kill him with the implications of bad doctrine. And that's because a dead Christ is a dead salvation. If he's not alive and pleading for us, then our faith is vain. And that begs the question, what's the faith of the doctrinally ignorant? What is it that sustains their faith? Is it a dead Christ? Well, I need to mention another interesting practice that's not mentioned in either the Old Testament or the New Testament. There is a legend that it was feared that the high priest 
might do something that was wrong in the temple. This comes out of the years of the temple. And that would cause him to be struck dead. Now, obviously, that part's true because there must have been something that he could do according to Exodus 28 that would cause God to strike him dead. So what are they going to do if the high priest is in the tabernacle or he's in the temple and he's dead? Well, ordinarily, the, the priest didn't enter when the high priest alone was supposed to be there. And someone who was not a priest certainly couldn't go into the, into the temple. So how are they going to get a dead priest out of the temple? If others went in, then there would be dead bodies on top of dead bodies. So how are you ever going to get somebody who's dead out of there? So the story goes that in the two centuries that preceded the uh, destruction of the temple by the Romans in AD 70, and this, of course, would be in the intertestamental period, the story is that there was a scarlet rope that was tied to the ankle of the high priest. And if they couldn't hear the bells, then the assumption is he's dead, and we've got to get him out of there. So they would tighten up on the rope, and they would tug at it, to try to get a response, and if there wasn't a response, then they would begin to pull on that rope, and they would just pull the dead body out of the temple. Now, that's a very interesting prospect, because there were many, many wicked priests, especially in that period, in the intertestamental period, and even before that, there were some wicked priests, and yet we don't find an example or mention anywhere in the Scriptures that a priest died in the tabernacle or the temple. Now, there has to be a reason for that. Now, I want to comment, first of all, that it's unlikely that this was done. It certainly wasn't done by any commandment that we can find recorded in the Scripture. All the instructions for this are given in Exodus, and there's no mention that, well, you need a fail-safe mechanism. Now, we know God's very specific about worship, and so it's highly doubtful that this is information that God would have left out or would allow to be altered. Now, it's hardly possible then that, that anyone would dare to alter God's instructions to presume to do this after they saw what God did to those who thought that they had a better way of doing worship. So what if Moses had said, you know something? We have a problem here. What are we going to do if Aaron messes up and he dies? How are we going to get him out of there? And so he thinks it over and he says, oh, here's what we'll do. Let's just tie a rope to his leg just in case. But wait, there's typology to consider. What does the safety mechanism do? Well, it says that Christ might fail. Salvation might fail, and so we need a backup plan just in case. Now, that fits the theology of some, but not ours. Some believe God has backup plans. Some think that the uh, sin of man in the garden was a, a failed experiment. God tried to do better, but the experiment failed. And then there are others who think, you know, it's better to be safe than sorry. And so they add Jesus to all the other gods that they worship just in case he might be the right one. And they would have him too. But there's nobody who gets the benefits of salvation without unreserved trust in Jesus Christ alone. So no, Moses, Moses is not going to tie a rope to Aaron's leg just in case because the type would be ruined. And we know what happened to Moses when he ruined one of God's types. But let's suppose for a moment that the legend is true, 
that in the second century before Christ, they tied a rope to the high priest before he went in. Why wouldn't God stop them from doing it? And then further, when you get into the New Testament period, on, uh, that is when, when Jesus came, and you have these two very wicked high priests, Ananias and Caiaphas, who are two of the most wicked men that ever lived, how is it that they were able to get into the temple without being struck dead? I think we would probably need an explanation for that. How, how can somebody so wicked serve in the, in the temple? And then still another question. We know that there were wicked Old Testament priests, such as Eli. He was a very wicked man. Why is there no record of any of these priests being struck dead? Now, I'm asking the questions, and I'll tell you, I don't have the definite answers for it. So, uh, I have a proposal, though, that I would like for us to think about. Now, since I first saw these slides that I showed you back in 1957, that's many, many years ago, I've had a lot of time to think about these things. And maybe this is an explanation. With the destruction of the first temple in the time of Jeremiah, the Ark of the Covenant disappeared. Now, the Ark was the uh, only article that's behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies where the blood atonement is made. And there is, there's, isn't anybody who knows what happened to that Ark. Now, some believe that what Jeremiah did was to hide it underneath the Temple Mount, and there are people still today that want to get under there and dig and look and see if they can find the Ark of the Covenant. Then there are some who believe that the ark was actually taken straight up into heaven. There are some who believe, which I, what I think is probably most likely, is that the ark was destroyed. But then there are some, like um, Indiana Jones, of course, who believes that it was stored in a box somewhere in a warehouse after it was con con confiscated from the Nazis. So you have all these theories about what happened to the ark of the covenant, but... Whatever happened to it, we do know this, there is nobody who rebuilt that ark. The temple that Ezra and Zerubbabel built, the second temple after the destruction of the first, and then the one that was expanded by Herod, did not have an ark of the covenant. So the priest couldn't do the very same type of work according to Moses' very specific instructions. And so therefore, the bells lose their significance in the typology. The bells can't ring in relation to atonement and intercession. Now, neither was God's presence there any longer in the Shekinah, the glory, the glorious light. And so the worship of the temple, by the time that Jesus came, was only a shadow because God wasn't there. This, this may be the reason that wicked priests weren't killed because it didn't really matter as much because the symbolism is taken away because all of the articles of worship were destroyed by the Babylonians. And then during that 400 years between the Testaments, God didn't speak to Israel. It wasn't until John the Baptist came and he thundered in the wilderness that God returned with a prophet to speak to his people. And then when John was speaking to them, Christ came. And then what did Christ do? Well, twice. He went into the temple to purge it. He didn't kill anyone, but they killed him. Now, the salient point, I think, here is that Christ did his work. He made a sacrifice as the high priest. So he took his own blood and he sprinkled it in that place that was not made with hands. He was busy. He never stopped. And he always lives to make intercession for us. And we don't want to obscure that picture. We don't want to mess that up with bad doctrine. 
because then we end up with no Savior and no eternal life. Now, thirdly, is the practical application of the ringing bells. What does it mean to you and me? Thirdly, is that we should be always working. Christianity is not a lazy man's religion. Now, going back to John 9, Jesus said that he must work because the night comes when no man can work. Some of you are on the night shift. And I'm sorry, but the night shift is unbiblical according to Jesus. Uh, People aren't supposed to work at night. So you go tell your boss that I said, you're not supposed to be working at night and he'll put you on the day shift because I know that he'll understand this perfectly, why this is not the right thing to do. But there is a night coming, Jesus said, when all work will be over. The time will come when we can't do anything else because God is going to bring the world to a close. Until then, he tells us that the harvest is plenteous. But there's too many Christians that are lazy. And there aren't enough Christians that are ringing bells of service that are busy about doing the Lord's work. There are very few of us that are types of Christ in this. We're not very much busy doing what God tells us to do. And we wonder sometimes that, that, that it's really hard to criticize the doctrinally ignorant when the doctrinally sound don't do what their doctrine says. And so the pulpit, the pastor, as he preaches, he competes with church members that have many, many other things to do. Is it too much to spend time with God? Is it too much that we do our responsibilities? Have the bells of holiness fallen silent? And have we become a sound of of brass and tinkling cymbals? I think that's the case in many Christians' lives. Who are the people that are like Christ? It's the ones with a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate. They sound the faith of Christ and they produce fruits of service. So the question is, where are you in this picture? Are your bells ringing? Or are you dead with a rope tied around your ankle? Have you turned blue, the heavenly color? And I mean because there's a rope tied around your neck instead of your ankle? Well, this is just a marvelous picture of Christ in this blue robe of the ephod. And we ought to be thankful for the lessons that we learned here. To learn that Christ lives forever for us. He doesn't stop working for us. The question is, are we going to keep working for Him? It does make a difference. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for this beautiful picture that we have of Jesus Christ and bells that are ringing, bells of service that are always ringing because Christ intercedes for us, that Christ is alive, Christ is working to be sure that each and every one of us that are believers in him will possess our heavenly home. And we know, Lord, that if he ever stopped working, that's what would happen. We need Christ forever to work for us. Well, as long as we're in this life, until we're fully sanctified and glorified in heaven, Christ must do this work for us. So, Lord, we pray that we would return the service, that we would work for him, that we would be untiring, unceasing, and do what you'd have us to do every day of our lives and never, never stop being a testimony for you. 
Thank you for your people. Thank you for your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.